Heavenly Father, I, <clears throat> I ask now that you would continue the good work you began last Sunday. And that as we dive into what is unquestionably uh, one of the hottest topics of discussion in our culture right now, that as you did last week, you would guide us through your word. Lord, I pray for any heart in this room who, when Jean said, we're going to talk about the Bible and homosexuality, jumped up in their throat and thought, oh boy, that's the last thing I wanted to hear in church. You're an all-knowing God. You know who those folks are. Or you also know every individual in here who just wishes the whole topic would go away. Father, I pray for those folks that they and really all of us, Lord, would be able to trust that there is nothing that ever confronts, no question, no challenge that ever confronts our culture or our church that you are not Lord over and completely sovereign in. And no less importantly, that there's never any challenge or hot topic that that we're ever going to turn to your word and just come up empty. We never come up empty when we open the Bible. Never. And we thank you for that. Lord, it's, it's testimony to the God-inspired nature of your holy word that when, when a new cultural issue or question comes along, we go back to the Bible, you've got something to say yet again. That, that renews our confidence that these are your words and that you knew what you were doing and knew what you were saying when you inspired men to write them. We love you for that. We thank you for that. Speak now. Amen. Amen. Last week, as Jean said, we took a, a close look at what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. And I want to thank you for your response to that message. I received a number of encouraging responses. Probably the most encouraging was a gratitude from a number of folks that we were not shying away from difficult topics as a church. And uh, if you were grateful for that, I have good news for you. We're not going to stop. <laughs> we are not going to stop. As I prayed, God always has something to say. So we're not going to stop. I was also grateful for, for how many of you were asking practical questions about how to relate to the LGBT community as King's White. What, how are we going to relate to that community? Tell me practically, Matthew, what to do. Well, I'm going to try to answer more of those questions in what I share this morning, but once again, I presume that there may be a situation or a person or a relationship in your mind, and you're, you're sitting there thinking, I hope he talks about this. I, I don't know if I will. <laughs> I hope I will. But if I don't, I want to invite you to come back tonight at 6.30 in the seminar room. We're going to have open Q&A. Gene will be moderating that. I'll be there as sort of the talking head and uh, look forward to 
answering specific questions. So please make a point of coming back tonight to continue the conversation. In many ways, the, the reason we have so many questions, the reason this topic is not simple, is that um, sexual ethics is messy, right? Really, any ethics, any decisions we make about how to live as Christians in this world, they're messy, they're difficult, because, because our world's been corrupted by sin. But that's not all that's true about our world. And the first thing that God showed us last week is that his creation reflects the glory of God. And that means that sex, as created by God, is good and pure and right. All of you married couples missed a moment there. We're going to try that again. That means, that means sex, as created by God, is good and pure and right. It is. It is. We shouldn't be bashful about that. But as I say that, church, I I want you to know something. I I am very aware that if you've been sexually abused, or if you have seen sex used as a a weapon or as a a form of manipulation, that when when you hear that the pastor is going to speak about sexuality, and in particular homosexuality, part of you just thinks, do we have to open that part of my heart today? I don't presume that for all of you, sex as a topic, as a category, is just marked by joy and thanksgiving. Though, though I pray it is, but I don't presume that. And I want you to know that good part of the reason we are addressing our sexuality is because we believe that the redeeming power of the gospel doesn't look at our sexual brokenness and say, oh, oh, that's, that's too messy. It doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. There is no ethical mess in your life or in your culture where God says, I don't know what to do with that. Or where, the, where, where, where we look at that, we look at the gospel and say, ah, not good enough. No, no, that's never true. That's never true. And the presence of sexual corruption and sexual confusion doesn't change the fact that sex designed by God is incredibly good. What do I mean by that? I mean that physical intimacy between one man and one woman in the lifelong covenant of marriage is a testimony to the creative glory of God and a picture of the intimacy, the relationship between Christ and us as his blood-bought people. That's why sex is a good thing. And we learned that heterosexual normativity, as we looked at Romans 1 last week, is morally right, not because it's traditional. I can't say that loud enough. Not because it's traditional, it's heterosexual normativity is morally right because it is creational. That's why it's right. Because whenever sex comes up in the Bible, God doesn't pull up the Republican Party platform. Some of you need to notice that. He reaches back to creation. Always to define what is good and pure and right. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. We've got to remember that, church, in a world of sexual confusion and brokenness. Creation reflects the glory of the Creator, and we need to remember that that didn't stop when sin entered the world. So, word of gentle challenge exhortation for you parents. You've got to be careful that in your efforts to protect your children from a sexualized culture that is doing things with sex that God says is not morally right, that we don't end up communicating to them that the whole thing's just bad. You tracking with me? I really am concerned about this, and I think that churches like ours are particularly vulnerable to this danger, and that in the name of protecting our kids, we... We catapult them out into the world without a clue of how to think, engage, process, and and they just crumble when they get out there. Don't do that. Don't, Don't think that the value of protecting from evil and knowledge of evil is greater than the value of equipping and how to deal with it. Okay? Those are equally important. God is looking at both in evaluating your faithfulness as a parent. Remember that. Creation reflects the glory of God, but as we saw last week, we're still reviewing a bit here. Sin exchanges, like trading currency. Sin exchanges and continues to exchange worship of God and God's desires for worship of the creature and our desires. Sin sin says, I don't want that, I want this. I'm going to trade that in to get some of this. And that's why we use our bodies to fulfill our desires instead of using our bodies to fulfill God's design. Last week I said that that means sex isn't a political issue, it's a worship issue. It's a worship issue. And whether your orientation is heterosexual or homosexual, the question you have to wrestle with is, what do I need to do to honor and worship my creator with my sexuality? That's the question you have to answer. And it reveals our need for God's help. Because that's a hard question. That's a big challenge, to honor God with our sexuality. So that it lines up with God's created design. That's where we stopped last week. I think there are two big questions left. Question one, is homosexual activity any different than any other sin? Question two, how are we going to respond to the LGBT community as a church? And how are we going to respond to our own same-sex desires? Let's look at Romans 1 again and keep going. Romans 1, I'll begin reading in 26. We'll review a little bit from last week and then 
Keep going through the first part of chapter 2. 126. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. In the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So says the word of the Lord. Though Paul's not just addressing sexuality here, What he says here is exceedingly relevant for answering the questions that I posed earlier. Point number one. See this in the first part of what I read. Homosexual activity, church, is both different from and identical to every other sin. Both different from and identical to. Now look at verse 28, or really verses 28 through, through 32. You probably noticed that Paul makes a transition here from talking about homosexuality, homosexual activity, into a long list of 21 things that ought not to be done. You, you know what's sobering about that list? It just, it's relentless. 21, 1, 2, 3. What's sobering about that 
that none of us escape. None of us escape. I, I mean, I'm reading that, and it's like every time I read this list, I'm convicted of something new. None of us escape. Paul goes to great lengths to make abundantly clear that at its root, homosexual activity is no different than any other sin. It's all about this, this great exchange, saying, I don't want to go with you, God, and your desires. I want to go with myself and my desires. And the fact that at its root, it's identical, has profound implications for how we respond to folks inside and outside our community who are, who are wrestling, experiencing same-sex desire. So, so please hear this. If you have a heterosexual orientation, your greatest spiritual need is absolutely no different than anyone with same-sex desires. Absolutely no different. Your, your temptation matrix, if I could call it that, may look different than theirs, but your root problem is exactly the same. Spiritual idolatry. That, that's what's up with this exchange. And that means that a teenager who's disobeying their parents and dabbling in gossip and always fighting with their siblings needs the salvation and healing and holiness that God offers through the gospel of Jesus Christ no less than someone experiencing same-sex desires. No less. It's not my, that's not my sort of softening idea. Let's sort of be inclusive idea. That's the word of God. 21 indictments, expressions of idolatry. But at the same time, church, we need to recognize that God speaks of same-sex desires and homosexual activity as particularly grievous expressions of that idolatry. They belong in the same list as gossip and slander. But there's a reason it comes first. There's a reason it comes first. Because sexual sin, more than any other sin, as I said last week, it, it touches on what is at the core of your nature as an image bearer of God. Your sexuality, your maleness, your femaleness, and all that goes with that is at the core of who God said you and I are by virtue of creation. And that means that sexual sin is particularly grievous because unlike many other sins, it gets closer than so many to touching the core of who we are. It, it takes... A life-uniting act and uses it without life-uniting intent. And that's a big deal. Whether we're talking about heterosexual adultery or moving in with each other before you get married or we're talking about homosexual activity. All sexual sin is a really big deal. Which is why I say, and Paul makes clear, that homosexual activity is both different from and identical to every other sin. 
And that means, that means that if we can keep this difference in our minds, the fact that it's different in some ways, that's going to help us avoid minimizing or ignoring the issue. Maybe you've heard people say, well, well it's no different than, you know, when I, when I speed on 95, so why do we even need to talk about it? I disagree. Speeding doesn't touch at the core the way sexuality does. It's different. And when remembering it's different keeps us from disregarding the issue. But we also have to remember it's identical. You know what that protects us from? That protects us as a church from thinking that somehow we need a whole new set of spiritual tools and responses in responding to our own same-sex desires and helping the people around us respond to theirs. We, we get this idea that, well, I only know English, and, and that's, that's like Kurdish or something. I, I don't even get that. And we just look like bumbling idiots. And then people start thinking, because of our bad example, that God doesn't have anything to say about that. Not true. So remembering that it's identical keeps us from thinking that somehow the tools we need to respond to homosexual activity, that sin, are somehow radically different than the tools we need to respond to any other sin, including our own. It's different, and it's identical. A second, we're moving into chapter 2. The gospel compels us, the gospel compels us to respond to the LGBT community with broken-hearted boldness. Broken-hearted boldness. Where, where, do I, where do I get that? Why do I say that our response to that community should be broken-hearted, marked, marked by humble compassion and understanding? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Even if your erotic inclinations are heterosexual, we still practice, as Paul says in verse 1, the very same Things We have absolutely no moral high ground for thinking of ourselves as superior because our temptations look different. This is where the broken heartedness comes from. I'd say it this way. If you've only ever experienced heterosexual desires, you don't get a lick of moral credit for saying no to homosexuality. That makes sense? If you've only ever experienced heterosexual desires, don't go, pat, don't go around patting yourself on the back. You know, I thank God that I'm not like other men. Well, you know what? You haven't had to deal with that temptation. You've never experienced those desires, have you? And so don't, don't pat yourself on the back for resisting a temptation you've really never experienced. We have plenty of our own. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is where our brokenheartedness needs to come from. That the first thing the gospel confronts us with, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, isn't necessarily good news. It's bad news. It's bad news. You know what, you know what the cross confronts us with? And as we meditate this Friday night on, on its significance, it says, it critiques us and says, your sin is a big deal. You needed a Savior. Start the bidding there. The, the gospel isn't just this warm and fuzzy, God loves you. First, it confronts us with our sinfulness. It critiques you. 
And so it compels you to respond to fellow sinners with, with broken-hearted compassion because you realize, I've got the same problem. Looks different, but same problem. The gospel compels us to respond with, with a broken-hearted compassion, but it also compels us to respond with boldness. Boldness. Think of it this way. If our first response, our first mistaken response, rather, or the way we go wrong, if you're heterosexual, if the first mistake is self-righteous judgment, that attitude that says, I thank God that I'm not like other men, that's the first mistake, self-righteous judgment. And Paul's saying, you do the same things, so don't fall into that trap. Here's the second mistake. We think that love means unconditional acceptance. Two errors, church, we may fall into in the next decade. Error one, self-righteous, arrogant judgment. Error two, unquestioning acceptance. Look at verse three. If you're wondering what I mean by acceptance, keep wondering. I'm going to tell you. Verse 3, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judges those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, he just won't let us off the hook, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, or, our second challenge, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I don't think I have to convince you that we live in a world that defines kindness and love as unconditional acceptance. I, if I love you, if I'm kind to you, I affirm you, I approve of you, I accept you for who you are. And if I bring any agenda to the table, any agenda for change, it, it must be nothing more than helping you become a better you as you want to define it. Right? Isn't that the world we live in? That, that love, if it has any agenda, it's, it's, nothing any, it's never anything more than, I just want to help you become a better you. Friend, that is not biblical love. It's not. And maybe some of you have gotten offended at some friends or people in this church because they didn't relate to you that way. They didn't just say, I just want to help you become a better you. No, they, they started correct. You. How dare you? They, they started confronting you. How, how dare they? God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. And true love as God defines it in the Bible isn't man-centered. It's God-centered. And that means, here's what true love looks like. I affirm you, I have great affection for you, but my affirmation and affection express themselves in an unwavering passion for you to know and experience what Almighty God has said is good for you and glorifying to His name. That is love. And think about it. If sin, if if sin is our greatest evil and corruption as human beings, 
And if sin's goal is to send you to hell, is it kind to let it do that? Is it kind to look at somebody and say, you know what? That could be uncomfortable, so go to hell. Friend, if sin is our greatest enemy, then humble correction is the greatest expression of love. And anything other than that is downright hateful. It's hateful. Listen how Jonathan Lehman defines biblical love. Listen to how God is at the source of it and God is at the goal of it. He says, engaging with God, that's what we're doing right now. God and homosexuality, engaging with God and entering the transformative life of the church does not mean we get a kind of free pass. Oh, we think that. An unconditional love that leaves us where we are. Instead, Kingsway, we get a fiercely demanding love. A divine love that will never let us escape from its purifying, renovating, and ultimately healing grip. And so he goes on to say, a church that doesn't spend itself reaching out for lost sinners is not loving or holy. But a church that doesn't spend itself in helping those lost sinners conform more and more to the glory and worship of God is not holy or loving. God's kindness always leads us to repentance. And we experience God's kindness. Think about this. We experience God's kindness. You right now are experiencing God's kindness in two ways. First, through his forbearance and patience. Friend, do you realize that God could just pull the plug right now? God could just say, what time is it? At 11.09, I've had enough. I've had enough of everybody I created for my glory doing their own thing and running after their desires. It is time to stop this, and I am going to judge the entire world now. He could do that, and by the way, be completely justified in doing so. But he doesn't. He doesn't. The the day of judgment, the day of reckoning, when you and I are going to give an account for every word and thought and deed, that has been prolonged. That's been delayed. And friend, that delay is not meant to send you sliding into skepticism that somehow that day's not coming. The delay is meant to send you running to Jesus. It gives you time, time to recognize your sin before God. Recognize you are sexually broken, regardless of your orientation. Realize you need a Savior. Repent of your sin and trust Him to save you. The delay shouldn't make you skeptical of God's reality or His compassion. It should increase your faith. Because it's a sign that He's a compassionate God. And he's giving you time to repent. And I want to encourage you. If you're not convinced you're a Christian, 
I hope you realize that that right now at 11.10, on March 29th, you could know complete forgiveness for your sins. And you could know maybe for the first time that when I stand before God, I'm not going to be holding an empty bag. But I'm going to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You could know that right now. You can be reconciled to God, friend, right now. As I'm preaching God's word, right now, you could be made right with God. If you repent of your sin, trust in the Savior. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God's kindness should lead you to repentance, not theoretically, but today. And that repentance, if you know you have repented and are a Christian, let me warn you, that repentance is not a one-time shot. Being a Christian isn't about saying, yeah, I guess I'm not a perfect person. You know, Hey, Jesus, can you just do your Jesus thing to make sure that doesn't come back to bite me one day? No, 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 because then we go on our merry way living a life that's, that's no different than the world around us. Friend, that's not the gospel. The gospel says that the grace that saves you is the grace that sanctifies you. The grace that makes you right with God is the same grace that makes you holy before God. The grace that reconciles you to the Father is the grace that conforms you into the image of the Father. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Listen to this, training us. It's not a new module. It's not a new workbook. The grace of God brought salvation, and the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies. The gospel through which you are, the moment you become a Christian, declared righteous, is the same gospel that every day after that, if you in fact are a Christian, you will be progressively made righteous. Remember that. That means that that holiness, I think we're at risk of this, holiness is not... a merit badge for super-Christians. Every church needs some really holy people. You know, the pastors, or the elders, or the deacons, or the, the worship leaders. I mean, you know, I just don't feel called to that. It's, it's kind of too inconvenient. I'm sure they just wear through their pant legs praying all the time. I don't, I don't want to do that. No, holiness is not optional. Without holiness, friend, I I completely mean this. You will not see the Lord. You won't. You won't see the Lord if you're not holy. God's kindness leads to repentance. Always. And it's the single most important proof that you are genuinely saved. Just listen to some of these scriptures. 1 John 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, 
And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. I mean, that couldn't be more clear. James 2, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Not struggling along. Dead. Or Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Your personal holiness matters, and don't let your understanding of God's grace in the gospel sort of take that out of the equation. Don't don't hear me saying it's grace plus works that makes you right with God. I am not saying that, and I have not said that. So don't say I'm saying that. What I am saying, friends, and what Paul is saying when he, when he warns us in chapter 2 that he will render to each one according to his works is that we don't, we don't get exempt from that because of Jesus. Rather, because of Jesus, we are now able to be holy. We don't obey in order for God to love us. We obey because God has loved us. But we obey. And if you don't obey, you don't get the love of God. You haven't responded to the love of God. Because kindness always leads to repentance. So, what does that look like in our relationship with the LGBT community? I said the gospel compels us to to broken-hearted compassion and, the second part of that, boldness. Broken-hearted boldness. So So here's what I mean by that boldness. Gospel-compelled boldness means that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that sexual purity in the lives of all the people around us is irrelevant. Or that it doesn't matter. Or that it's really all about Jesus. And we can get to that holiness stuff later, you know, when they want to become a deacon or something. No. You cannot claim to be a Christian if you are not progressively becoming more holy. God's kindness leads to repentance. And that means that as we are loving and befriending folks in the LGBT community, we must not think that because of the gospel, we just leave people where they are. Love does everything it can. And boldly so, to help people become who God has redeemed them to be, holy as He is holy. We know what God's Word says about the sexuality that is pleasing to Him, the sexual activity that honors Him, and so we must be bold in summoning ourselves, our brothers and sisters, and the world around us to obey God and submit our sexual desires to the King. And it's the Gospel that enables us to do that. It's the gospel that that changes our heart so that God's spirit lives inside of us and we're now actually able to keep God's commands. Brokenhearted boldness. The gospel compels both. Barr and Sitlow in a book that I read in preparation for this weekend called Compassion Without Compromise, you've got to love the title, say it this way. The good news is not Jesus likes us just the way we are. It's Jesus died so we could live a whole new life. 
So let me give you seven practical applications of this. What does this brokenhearted boldness look like? Hope you see why we need to be brokenhearted. Hope you see why we need to be bold. So how do we do this? Very quickly. Number one, be a good friend. Be a good friend. Jesus was very comfortable hanging out, eating, and generally having a good time with all kinds of sinful, struggling people. And you should be too. You should be too. Because even a non-Christian, no matter what sin they're struggling with, bears the image of God and has incredible dignity in the sight of God. That means you need to be a good friend. Okay. Number two, focus on their greatest need. Look, look for opportunities to talk about Jesus, not their sexual orientation. Don't, don't presume that simply because someone is experiencing same-sex desires or is living a homosexual lifestyle, that that means that the first point of relevance for the gospel is their sexuality. You know what? They may be struggling to trust God with their finances. Like anyone. Maybe that is the right entry gate to help them see what the gospel has to say about their life. You know, one of the goals of many activists in the LGBT community seems to be for all of us to define ourselves in terms of our sexuality. Well, I don't buy that. Neither should you. We, our sexuality is at the core of our image-bearing status, but it's not all that we are. You, you are not, you're a lot more than the sum of your biological anatomy. And so don't presume that sexuality is the right entry gate to a conversation about the gospel. Okay, focus, focus on their greatest need for Jesus and, and look for ways to get there. Number three, when God provides an opportunity, gently but firmly challenge them with what the Bible says about homosexual activity. Okay, remember what I, I argued earlier. True love doesn't accept people for who they are. True love helps them see who God has made them to be and how the cleansing work of the gospel and the empowering work of God's Spirit help us get there. So that means you need to be ready to share how God is helping you, Christian, fight for sexual morality, sexual purity yourself, whether or not you have the same sexual orientation as the person you're talking to, right? We're, we're all in the same fight. Be gentle, but be firm. Number four, fear God, not man. This is actually one of my greatest concerns for us. Because quite frankly, because the culture we live in, I believe that most of us are more tempted to soft-pedal the truth and be quiet about the truth uh, than to be judgmental. And you should know that right now I am mainly speaking to the under 30 folk. Here's what I see. By and large, if you're like 40, 50 older, uh, you even see this in statistical studies in America. Whether or not you know why it's wrong, you, you just don't, you're uncomfortable with um, gays and lesbians. You're just uncomfortable. But a lot of the younger folks like me who've grown up with gay or lesbian friends, we, we find ourselves thinking, well, in many ways they're really no different. I'm being a good friend. Um, do, we, do I really need to talk about their sexuality at some point? 
do. Do. Don't be self-righteous about it, but you need to be bold. You need to bring it up. Because you're not sharing your ideas or your moral opinions. You're sharing the word of God. You You should be just as bold as I am in this pulpit. Number five, resist the temptation to analyze your every word after the conversation. <laughs> so say God gives you an opportunity, brother, sister, to talk with a family member, someone in the community, your neighbor at work, who identifies with the LGBT community, and you know your, your blood pressure rises, your heart goes, you're like, shoot, I left my sermon notes at home. Um, um, God loves you. you know, and then you're just like out of there. <laughs> Well, just I didn't judge, right? Well, um, yeah, but but you also sounded like an idiot. Um, Don't do that. Don't do that. God has this marvelous way of communicating his word through bumbling idiots. Okay? God has this marvelous way of communicating his word crystal clear through bumbling idiots. And that means that after the conversation, if you remember this church, talking with someone in the LGBT community, you need to not locate your assessment of how well that chat went and how you feel about that chat. You need to locate your confidence in the character of God, in the word of God, and in the work of God, who, as I said a minute ago, delights to use bumbling idiots to communicate moral truth and gospel promises. I I was on the airplane yesterday flying back from school and had a chance to talk with the man sitting next to me about the gospel. And afterward, I'm walking off the jet bridge, I'm just thinking, Williams, you're a pastor. Williams, you just went to a seminary and you know, infused with all this teaching. You botched that whole conversation. You, you, didn't, you didn't pick up the right entry gates. You, was that biblical? You, know, you just start analyzing. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because if you get stuck there, it's going to cause you to start thinking that you have to be a professional preacher, man, to have anything relevant to say about God and your world. You don't. You're a Christian. You get that ability by virtue of being filled with the Spirit of God. To quit worrying. Don't, 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 don't think, well, you know, until I get this... I, Matthew, got any book recommendations? I, I, I just, maybe if I read some more books, I'm gonna my blood pressure won't go up. When he said, you know, when he says, "Would you like to meet my husband?" I, you know what? It's going to get used to it. But don't trust your words. Trust God's work. Number six. Each one of these could be a sermon. Oh. Number six. Come back tonight. Remember, change is a process. I think this is the last application of brokenhearted boldness. Remember, change is a process. A a series, word to the wise, a series of shorter conversations about God, about sexuality, is usually better than three hours of, I just quoted 15 Bible verses, thank you very much, and I about knocked you out. 
You know, you don't, you don't want to beat people with this. You don't want to apologize for this. But be sensitive and recognize that, that change is a process. I love how 1 Thessalonians 5 says this. Paul urges us, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. This is the kicker. Be patient with them all. Do you realize that it might not be God's will for the first time you share the gospel or talk about sexual purity with someone that right there on the spot, everything changes? It might just not be God's will. God, imagine this, may just be starting a process that's going to culminate 30, 40 years later in a heart that is bowed to Jesus. Therefore, you shouldn't think, well, I already had that conversation with that coworker. Or I, I, I mustered up my courage and, and I, I talked about Jesus and, you know, I said what I believe about homosexuality with my friend. Whew, glad we got that one done, you know. Good, I got my faithful badge now. I keep going. Better things. No. Be patient. Be patient. Be willing to, to speak a little truth and wait. Speak a little more truth and wait. It's also good parenting. Gospel compels us to brokenhearted boldness because it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Last point. The fight for sexual purity, we'll end with this, is a lifelong struggle to live out your identity in Christ. Look look back at verse 7. Lest you think I have long left Romans. I want to make this connection very clear, friends. Romans 2, verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. I I want you to focus on that that first phrase. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and and immortality. Okay, notice first, God calls you, Christian, to patience in well-doing. Well, we, we know well-doing means, means pleasing God with our bodies by walking in sexual purity. But, but why does God tell us to be patient in well-doing? He's not talking about being just patient with other people, which we touched on. Patient in well-doing yourself across the board. Why, why does he say that? I think it's because God knows something that you and I tend to forget. We tend to forget. We tend to forget that as long as we're living in a fallen world, last time I checked, that's still true right now. As long as Jesus hasn't come back yet, our sexual desires will always be corrupted by sin. We are groaning with creation heterosexual, homosexual orientation alike. We are groaning with creation, longing for the redemption of our bodies. And friend, if you regularly struggle with same-sex desires, I want to talk about this for a minute, and you forget that, that we are groaning while waiting, you're going to set yourself up for a life of confusion and disillusionment. And let me tell you why. You become a Christian, experiencing same-sex desires, Strong same-sex attraction, 
that desire might not go away. It may never go away. And here's what we need to remember what I said earlier. The goal of the gospel is not a new sexual orientation. Right? One day when Jesus returns, all things are made new and we get new bodies, all are, oh, this is going to be amazing. Every desire you ever experience for all eternity will be completely pleasing to God. Oh, man. Kind of makes me want him to come back now. But until that day, the corruption in our sexual desires may never go away. The gospel doesn't promise hope of a new sexual orientation right now. The gospel promises hope and power for sexual purity. So don't live your life under this false expectation that somehow, if you choose to follow Jesus, you're never going to experience any, any desires sexually that God says are off limits. That's a lie. That's a lie. When, when a heterosexual man becomes a Christian, that doesn't mean that his sexual interest or desire for women other than his wife goes away. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. What will change and what what must change, regardless of your orientation, if you're a Christian, is that now all your desires are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus now gets to call the shots on what desires you act out and what you don't act out. And Paul calls that a fight. A fight to live as a redeemed man or woman in a fallen world where the temptation to sin often never goes away. Notice in verse 7, he says that Christians are those who by patience and well-doing seek something. Just think about that word seek. You know what that word doesn't mean? It doesn't mean that you know, you're just going to kind of wander along your Christian life and one day you're walking along and you're like, oh, oh man, I found holiness. No, no. You've got to seek for it. That, that's an active word. That's an aggressive word. That's a deliberate fight word. You've got to seek for it. Seeking means hard work. Seeking means sustained, untiring effort. Seeking means fighting for holiness. And when you, you, when you know you're not living a holy life as a Christian, seeking means you don't just throw your hands up Oh, I believe in a you know, reformed faith, so I'm just going to sit around and wait till the grace of God zaps me in the butt and makes me like Jesus. No! Don't you do that. Work out your salvation because it's God who works in you. Right? Because His grace is working in us, we work, we seek, we work. It's hard. I have tempted to invite all of you to the gym this afternoon. We're going to experience physically what we ought to be doing spiritually every day. We discipline ourselves for godliness. And friend, I want to encourage you. If you have a same-sex orientation and, and denying yourself the intimacy that your heart longs for, and you think, I just wish that the guys in this church would get that I love Jesus, but these desires won't go away either, I want you to take heart here and know that you're not fighting a losing battle. 
You're not denying your true identity. You're not failing to be who God's made you to be. You are learning to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And I'm trying to do that too. So can we pray together? Preparation, I, I, I read another book by a man named Wesley Hill. Two things you need to know about Wesley. Wesley's a Christian. Wesley has also experienced strong same-sex desires for as long as Wesley can remember. And has chosen to remain celibate as a result. The world would say he's a fool. And that if he would just quit denying who he is on the inside, he would have a happy life. Wesley disagrees. I want to read you what he had to say. The Bible calls the Christian struggle against sin faith. It calls the Christian fight against impure cravings holiness. Look at this. So I am trying to appropriate these biblical descriptions for myself. I'm learning to look at my daily wrestling with disordered desires and call it trust. I'm learning to look at my battle to keep from giving in to my temptations and call it sanctification. I'm learning to see that my flawed, imperfect, yet never giving up faithfulness is precisely the spiritual fruit that God will praise me for on the last day to the ultimate honor of Jesus Christ. That's good. That's good. And so if you experience same-sex desires, here's what God tells you to do. Fight for holiness like every other Christian. And remember that experiencing a temptation to sin is different than actually sinning. And that until Jesus returns and makes all things new, your desires may never go away. But you know what? That's okay. Because if you're a Christian, your identity is not the product of your sexual desires. Your identity is Jesus Christ. At the core of who you are lies not a sexual orientation, Christian, but a Savior. You have been united with Christ by faith such that now God sees you as, as in Christ. That's not legal fiction or make-believe. You're, you're a new creation. Salvation gives you an entirely new spiritual identity. That means that the banner over your life, struggling brother or sister, is not, I struggle with same-sex desires. The banner over your life, if you're a Christian, is, I have a great Savior. That's the banner over your life. And I want you to know something. That is, as a pastor, how I see you. And how any gospel-centered member of this church should see you as well. When Paul exhorts you, friends, to seek glory and honor and immortality, he's charging you to fight for something that God has already promised to give you because of Jesus. You need to work hard to seek glory. To proclaim God's 
worthiness through your sexuality. You need to work hard to seek honor, to live in such a way that you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You need to work hard to persevere in the faith so that you can receive the reward of eternal life. And some days you're going to fight well, and some days you're going to fail. But on every day, you've got to remember that life doesn't come from sex. Life comes from knowing and loving Jesus. You don't need an active sexual life to be fully and truly alive. Listen how Wesley concludes. If Jesus abstained, and if he is the measure of what counts as true humanity, then I may abstain too. And trust that in so doing, I will not ultimately lose imitating Jesus, conforming my thoughts, beliefs, and desires and hopes to his, sharing his life, embracing the gospel's no to homosexual practice, I become more fully alive, not less. According to the Christian story, true Christ-like holiness is the same thing as true humanness. To renounce homosexual behavior is to say yes to a full, rich, abundant life. Isn't that good news? The fight to honor God with your sexuality is a fight to live out your identity in Christ. So here's what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. Number one, creation reflects the glory of God. Number two, Sin exchanges worshiping the creator for worshiping the creature. Number three, our sexual desires are not exempt from the curse of sin. Number four, homosexual activity is both different from and identical to every other sin. Number five, the gospel compels us to respond to the LGBT community with brokenhearted boldness. And number six, the fight for sexual purity is a lifelong struggle to live out our identity in Christ. You remember that? You're going to do great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that as a family, a church family, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. Would you know we have covered much the last two weeks? Questions remain. But Father, I pray more than anything else that you would make this church a place where true love is shown. God, we renounce any notion that that we are any better that we need Jesus any less than anybody else. Lord, we also renounce the notion that our holiness doesn't matter. And I pray that you would teach us to be a people who are brokenhearted and bold. And that we would be comfortable walking in relationship with friends and family members and coworkers that are, are discovering that and learning that and 
wrestling with what that means. I, I pray, God, that you would give us many testimonies of how you used men and women in this church to see other men and women who are stuck and trapped in sexual brokenness find freedom in Jesus. That's what we want. Make us that kind of church. Protect us from circling the wagons. Help us love people as you define love. In Jesus' name, amen.